that we're going to be reading from the book of John, chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you remain standing just for one more moment, please? Thank you. May we be good hearers and better doers. May we love Jesus deeply. May we trust what Jesus says. And may we follow Jesus well. You may be seated. Good morning. Beautiful. You can smile. Um, Non-rhetorical question, okay? Non-rhetorical. Non-rhetorical. I I grew up in like preacher traditions. You can talk back, okay? So actually non-rhetorical question. You can answer it non-rhetorically. Quick show of hands. Who has ever struggled with patience or waiting? (laughs) Beautiful. We're on level playing field. Now, um, for those of you who has ever struggled with lying, apparently not all of you raising your hand. Anyway, um, (laughs) thank you for telling the truth. That was ironic. Imagine you're a part of a family who God promised to give a land where you'll be safe, at peace, at rest, and provided for. But somewhere on the journey, you end up in the opposite predicament. You're not home. You're in enslavement. You're stuck. Decades, they go by, and you're slowly even starting to question as the time goes on if things will ever get better. It seems like your whole life is waiting on the promise. You're waiting and longing and hoping and waiting. Have you ever felt that or been there? So you learn to do what we all kind of do when we've waited for so long. You learn how to live with it. You learn to survive. But 430 years of survival, it shapes you. It changes how you see the world and how you see yourself. 400 years of hoping and praying and waiting. Then, in the middle of the waiting, a voice coming from a fire says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned. I'm concerned about their suffering. So... I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hands to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Those are good words. God sees the waiting. Let me say that again. He sees the waiting. He hears your cry. He promises to bring you into a land of flourishing. He rescues you from enslavement, but leads you into the wilderness. You're not where you were, but you're not where you hope to be. You're on the road, but you're on the in-between. And being in the in-between is tough, right? It's tiring living in the in-between, to be so close, but still so far. It's getting out of that job but waiting for the dream. It's having professional success, but waiting for your child to finally be well. It's being healthy overall, but waiting for the positive pregnancy test. It's my friend who got the treatment for his cancer, but he had to wait months. He had to wait months to see 
if the treatment really worked. It's the already of deliverance, but the not yet of arrival. If you understand what it's like to be in the in-between, to be waiting, then you might understand on an emotional level what some of it must have felt like to be in that wilderness. It's an ache. And there's a word for that kind of ache and a word for that kind of longing. The ache is to finally be home. It's a longing for home. Like Tyler said it last night, or last week, home is the place, I heard, oh, great if you said it last night to me, but home is the place where you hear dinner is ready. These people, they've longed to finally be in the land, to finally be home. Have you ever noticed that philosophers, poets, theologians, and filmmakers, they often describe the human condition as one of longing for home? Think of the movie Black Panther. It touched the longing for a place where you're seen, where you're celebrated and safe, regardless of the color of your skin. That's home. Avatar, the movie, it touched the longing for a world where resources, places, and peoples, they aren't exploited, but all creation can flourish. That's home. The notebook, it touched the longing for a life where you're wanted even when your body has lost its usefulness. That's home. The Lion King, God bless James Earl Jones. Remember. (laughs) The Lion King, it touched the longing for a land where evil, self-serving, and oppressive rulers, they're kicked out and the kingdom can thrive at last. That's home. I think these stories, they resonate because they tell us that our longing for home, it's a universal human experience. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he constantly spoke of this yearning for home. I have a dream that one day, On the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. Home is what he preached about on the eve of his assassination when he said, I've been to the mountaintops and I've seen the promised land. That's a vision for home. Now, scripture points to that longing for home when it talks about exile and Eden, eternal life, the new Jerusalem, covenant blessing, the future Sabbath rest, and the promised land. C.S. Lewis, he talked about this longing when he said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we're made for another world. Or as a theologian from Kansas once put it, there's no place like home. In other words, our unsatisfied longings, they tell us that we're not home yet. And this longing, it's not just for the religious. I thought, you know, when you think about it and when you slow down and when you look up and when you listen, we notice that our city is longing for home. Do you see it? Because I see it on my drive to the gym or when I bust home from work, when I walk to the grocery store and jog around the city. Do you hear the pain behind the passion of every protest sign and post? There's a human ache because our city and our world knows that this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel like home always should feel like. Our city knows that we're not home yet. Now, the self-described atheist and the lead singer of the 1975, any fans, 1975? Their last show was just... The lead singer, Matt Healy, he describes this feeling so poignantly in his song, Love It If We Made It. In the song, he sings about the ways our world isn't home yet. He sings about things like a culture that is distrusting, outraged, and post-truth. A prison system that preys on young black people to keep itself in business. A Syrian boy fleeing for his life, but washing up on the Mediterranean shore. 
Can you hear the ache he feels as he ends each verse singing? We're just left to decay. Modernity has failed us. Jesus, save us. Modernity has failed us with the haunting chorus on repeat. I'd love it if we made it. I'd love it if we made it. I'd love it if we made it. The 1975 is shouting, we have not yet made it. That's the longing of our city and our world to finally be made right. And even though there's plenty of beautiful, restorative work that people do in this world, we're still waiting. We're still wandering. And a lot of times it doesn't look like we're even close to what the child in each of us longs for, the safety, the peace, and the flourishing of home, to not just be out of Egypt, but to finally be in the land. And it's to that longing for home, to get out of the wilderness, that we hear Jesus' words from John 8, I am the light of the world. The scripture, it has so much to say about light. In the beginning, when there was darkness, God said, let there be The psalmist said, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Everybody together. The psalmist said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Isaiah, he said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The gospel of John names that the light that began creation in Genesis 1 is beginning a new creation in John 1. John goes on to say that in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The true light that gives light to everyone has come into the world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then on the final pages of scripture, Jesus, he shows his people what's coming. The holy city, the new Jerusalem. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb is its lamp. The nations, they walk by its light. Jesus shows up to the human story and says that he is the light we're longing for. But Jesus said this pre-Edison. In his day, and for most of human history, light confronts the dark only one way, by fire. Exodus 13, after leaving Sukkot, they encamped on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to give them on their way, to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel through the wilderness by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Fire is a consistent way that God's presence appears throughout the scripture. When God appeared to Moses, there was fire. When God's presence stood over the tabernacle, there was fire. When God's presence filled the temple, there was fire. When God's presence rested on the church, there were tongues of fire. And when the prophet Elijah describes how Yahweh acts, he says that Yahweh is the God who answers by fire. And when God led his people out of enslavement through the wilderness, he did it by a pillar of. Now imagine, just for a moment, like let your minds go wild for for a moment. Imagine seeing that fire in the wilderness. Like not a little candle, no, no. Like imagine seeing that fire 
leading you through the wilderness. This pillar of fire was a light guiding the people in the dark. The pillar of fire, it was heat keeping them warm in the cold. And when death came chasing from that snake-like Pharaoh's army, this fire was their protection. It actually moved from being in front of the people to being between the armies of Pharaoh and God's people, securing their journey. Yahweh, the great fire and light, led the people through the wilderness. And this is what was celebrated during the festival called Sukkot. They would mimic the wilderness journey by camping in Sukkot or tabernacles or booths. They would then dance and sing the Hallel songs. Like this party, it was lit. People were just like having a great time. Then the people, they would fill the city with light by igniting massive torches as a reminder of the God who is fire that led them through the wilderness and to hope for that light to bring them home again. This is the party that Jesus shows up late to. And it's during the highest point of this festival that Jesus says that the light that led God's people through the wilderness is here again. Now think about what's happened in Jesus' story so far. John chapter 6, we talked about it last week. Jesus claims to be the bread in the wilderness. In John 7, which we didn't talk about and didn't read today, he claims to give water to those in the wilderness. And now in John 8, he claims to be the light. Do you see what is he doing? Jesus is recapitulating the whole wilderness journey and says that it finally culminates in him. In other words, he claims to be the Messiah, the Christ, the one who will crush the snake's head and lead anyone who wants to follow him to the land, to life, to freedom, to Eden, to covenant blessing. He's offering to lead the people home. And this invitation is not just for his people, it's for the whole world. It's for you and it's for me. Jesus, he's claiming to be humanity's guiding light. Not one of many lights, but the light. But here's the point, and follow me. His point is not just for people to see the light. It's not to learn about the light, admire the light, consider the light, speculate about the light, appreciate the light, post about the light, write a blog about the light, or meet about the light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, anyone who follows me. He's telling you that he's the light for a reason, not just to inform your mind, but because he wants you to follow the light. The invitation is to follow him, which makes sense. I mean, how helpful would it be if you're stuck in the wilderness and have a guide that you won't follow? What's the point of waiting for the light if you don't actually follow where it leads? Remember, the wilderness, it's not supposed to be the final destination. That's why Jesus' next words are actually deeply loving when he warns I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Jesus calls life outside of his leading darkness, which makes sense if he's light, right? If you don't have the light, you're in darkness. Now, he's not condemning anyone to darkness. He wants to actually save us from it, which everyone should say, like, thank you, Jesus, for that. He's saying we're actually already in darkness. We're in the snake's domain. We're in the wilderness. That's our state if we don't follow him. A problem is that sometimes we don't realize we're in the dark. Jesus actually names this in his Sermon on the Mount when he says, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Or in other words, if you're convinced that you can guide yourself home, if you're convinced you're your own light, then you're stumbling in the dark without a clue which way is north. And if Jesus is right, then regardless of how much you enjoy it or how well you've learned to navigate it, or how normal it is for the world around you, or even how right it might sound. If Jesus is right, if you're not being guided by him, then you're still in darkness. 
Which means the question that we must ask isn't, do I like what Jesus said? The question is, is Jesus right and will I follow him? Jesus puts it another way in John chapter 8 when he says, if you do not believe that I am he or I am the light, you will indeed die in your sins. Darkness, now dying in sin. Yep, it's one of those days. Which sounds kind of intense or exclusive because it kind of is. But exclusivity is not always bad. Sometimes it can be helpful and even loving. Like if I had a rare terminal disease that had only one cure, I would not fault my doctor for telling me that cure. Not if my doctor's right. Jesus, what he's doing, he's doing a biopsy on the cosmic conditions of things. He's lovingly pleading that to say, without humanity guiding, we will die in darkness, which is a pretty tough pill to swallow, but what if it's still true? What if we're walking in darkness and we can't lead ourselves out? What if the 1975 was actually right to say, Jesus, save us, modernity has failed us? That cry for help makes Jesus' promise all the more personal when he cries. And let's read it out loud together. Are you ready? Let's read. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or as he later says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Believe. John's gospel wasn't written so that you would just hear it or think about it or learn from it, but so that you may believe, and by believing, you may have life. He wants you to believe. Now, believing, it's not just for religious people. Believing, it's human nature. The theologian Frederick Dill Bruner describes believing as relaxing into. It's like the trust fall. My wife hates those. And a number of thinkers, they even explain to believing as a simple word, trust. Trust is the thing we humans have to do every moment of every day, with every part of our lives, big and small, conscious and unconscious. Our lives, they're built on the stories, the narratives that we trust about what it means to be human. So Jesus, he shows up in the middle of a festival that's dedicated to rehearsing Israel's story and the human story, a story that says we are in darkness, we're in the wilderness, we're searching for home, a story that says each one of us will trust something or someone to bring us home. Jesus shows up to that story and that ache and claims that he is the one we should trust to bring all of humanity home. So can I ask you, where do you put your trust? And like, just in honesty, think about it for a moment. When you get that call with the news that shatters your sense of norm, or it shatters your sense of security into pieces, where do you put your trust? And when you get that, you know, ambiguously critical comment from one of your coworkers, it never happens, but it pricks your insecurity and suddenly your mind is racing with that like weird combination of defensiveness and self-consciousness. Like when that moment happens, where do you put your trust? When the future doesn't look like it's gonna work out the way you wanted it to, where do you put your trust? What do your hopes and joys, your anxieties and disappointments, what do they say about your trust? It's subtle, but all of that is connected to your longing and your ache and your search for home. For me, I'm noticing it with such a thing that I almost feel embarrassed about, but like I'm noticing it with money. My wife has made this really clear with me. Um, 
I'm noticing it recently in the ways that like, I'm being slow to being generous. Where like, I'll have an opportunity to be at a meal with somebody and, and I'll hear that, the subtle, quiet words and whispers of Jesus where he's like, just be generous. It's better to give than it is to receive. But for some reason, I'm calculating how my Why Not budgeting app is going to reconcile perfectly. If I give this little bit of money, will I be okay? Why? Because somewhere my money is attached to my thoughts about my future and my protection, my safety. It's connected to my fears about home. And so somewhere I don't know that I can really trust if Jesus will lead me there and take care of me, so I have to do it myself. I notice it in the relational issues that I walk through that start to cause me anxiety. Or other times it causes me to want to control everything or some moments it causes me to want to people please as a way of securing my relational future. I don't trust that I can go to Jesus fully with every single need all the time. I don't trust that the scripture is telling the truth when he says cast your cares on him for he cares for you. Somewhere deep in my heart I don't always trust the truest story. And so I try leading myself to life. I try leading myself to home. Do you see what I'm saying? We all are trusting someone or something to get us home. What is it for you? Like if you're honest with yourself, what is it for you? What are you trusting to lead you to freedom and to life? Now notice what happens next. John 8, 32. To the Jews who had believed or had trusted, Jesus says, the truth will set you free. How many of you have ever heard that line from Jesus before? Oh, we said we're working on lying. How many of you have ever heard that? <laughs> this is, I, I mean, I grew up in church. My name's Christian. Like, I have heard this a thousand times, like more times than I can count. It's easily one of Jesus' most well-known lines from like Jim Carrey to Bluey for all my parents out there. We've all heard the truth will set you free, but I wonder if our familiarity with these words has made us miss some of what Jesus may actually be going after. I don't think that Jesus is only saying that when you know the right things, then you will find life or freedom or home. I think most of us can actually attest to the reality that right information or even willpower or motivation is not enough for our lives to be transformed. Yes, knowledge and truth are vital. We must live within reality to find life. But hearing about the truth is only a part of the process. Notice the complete sentence that typically is not quoted. Here's what Jesus says. If you hold to my teaching, his message, the logos, his speech and words, you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth or experience the truth and reality and the truth will set you free. Our rabbi is saying, if you relax into my teachings in the midst of the big and small interruptions of your serenity, then you're really free. Free in a way the world can't take. Then you're already home, even when you're on the journey. So if you want to experience life or freedom or reality, hold to Jesus' teaching. Somebody say hold. Hold. But his words, put his words into practice. Do what he says, which does start with your thinking. It starts with your thoughts, but it continues with your body, with your lifestyle, with your words, with your money, with your time, with your relationships, with your plans, with all of you. If you want to experience life, do what Jesus says, which I think so many of us actually want to do. And yet, haven't we all experienced that gap? Like the gap between our hearing and our doing? We got so many ways to hear. We got books, podcasts, YouTubes, talks, another sermon, 
we got so many avenues for information and an endless supply of ways to hear. Yet Jesus' brother and the pastor of the church in Jerusalem warns God's people, don't be hearers only deceiving yourselves, but be doers of the word. Similarly, Jesus says, everyone who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. I think that our temptation is not so much to miss the light or not hear the light. Our temptation is to study the light, to ponder the light, to dance in the light, but not actually follow the light, to not put his words into practice. Our temptation is to not hold onto his words, to be hearers only, yet deceive ourselves, which doesn't that sound so familiar to Israel in the wilderness? I mean, they saw the light. They heard the light. They wrote down what the light had to say. They sang about the light. They danced in the light. But they had an actual hard time following the light. They had a hard time being faithful to do what Yahweh said. Let me frame it another way. The problem for God's people was not just getting out of Egypt. The problem for God's people was the mundanity of fidelity before getting home. The mundanity of fidelity before getting home. It was their obedience in the in-between and the waiting. It was following the light into the land, which felt dangerous, just like following the light can often feel today. They got tripped up when following what the light said wasn't intuitive or it felt difficult. And if I can name our temptation in our city, they got tripped up when following the light meant like living in contrast to the surrounding nations. They got tripped up in the fidelity of following the light and we're tempted to do the same. So let me ask you again, like I've been asking myself. Be honest with yourself. And if you need to write it down, the Spirit might even whisper to you, just write it down. What subtle ways am I not fully entrusting my life to Jesus' leading? Are there topics I've been unwilling to talk with Jesus about? Is there a teaching of Jesus that is especially difficult for me to follow? Yes. What area of my life am I conveniently ignoring Jesus, assuming I know a better way home? Maybe it's like you've camped out in the desert and instead of trusting and following Jesus to see if he really leads to life, you're just stuck waiting. Now, a number of people, they didn't entrust themselves to Jesus and he left the temple grounds. That's John chapter nine. As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. This man was blind from birth. And he told his disciples in John chapter 9, verse 4, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Remember this, night is coming. When no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Jesus healed a blind man. Now the healing of a blind man was the miracle that Jesus performed connecting to all that he said during this festival. As Tyler mentioned last week, these miracles and signs, they're showing us who God is. They're showing us how God acts. They're showing us what God is up to in the world. So I find it interesting that in the Gospels, blindness seems to be what Jesus heals most often. Have you noticed that? Maybe it's because on a metaphoric level, blindness and darkness is the condition of our world without Jesus. 
Remember Paul's words that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It seems like a normal strategy of the enemy is blindness. So the living temple leaves the temple grounds and the light of the world chases after a man in the dark. That's what he's like. Have you ever experienced Jesus' pursuit after you? In the middle of darkness, Jesus comes after you. Isn't he good? Isn't he loving? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the ways you come after us. Thank you for the ways that you're even pursuing some of us right now. Jesus, he's quite brilliant. And he, um, so brilliant. So he does something that as I've been reading John 9 has been blowing my heart open. Have you ever read the Bible and you like see something you're like, oh my gosh, I never noticed this before. It's like, it's like I never read it. It's like I was reading it all again for the first time. Jesus has been whispering to me about this moment and I hope he'll whisper something to you too. As you keep reading John 9, you'll notice that a question is asked four times. Four times, same question. I think that's a literary device we're supposed to pay attention to. Do you know what the question is? The question is, how did this blind man receive his sight? Four times. It's asked that. How did you receive sight? How did he receive sight? How did your son receive sight? How did you get your sight? How did you begin to see? Well, Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, put the mud in the man's eyes, and then told the blind man to go to the pool of Siloam. This is the pool that the priests most likely went to during the festival to get the water that they pour out as a reminder of God's provision and as a prayer for it again. Also, he did this on the Sabbath, proving that this day of rest is a day for healing. But Jesus told this blind man to go to the pool of Siloam. He told a blind man to go to the pool. He told a blind man to go to the pool of Siloam and then wash the spit mud off of his eyes. Now, if you're like me, you probably have two thoughts to this. First, ew. That's nasty. But if you need healing today, you can come forward and we're going to... No. But, um, but second and most important, after ew, my question is, why? Like, put yourself and your story into this man's shoes. Why? This man has been blind since birth. The only thing he's ever known is blindness. He's been stuck in this same situation for what seems like forever. And Jesus shows up, the man who can heal, the man who with just a word healed someone's daughter that was so far away. Jesus, the one who put his hands on the sick and they were healed. Jesus, the one who called Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus was raised from the dead. Jesus, the one who a woman with an issue of blood just touched the hem of his garment and she was healed instantly. Jesus, the one who's opened the eyes of so many blind people with just a touch or a word. Yet Jesus, for some reason, he doesn't Do that. He spits in the ground and puts mud on this man's eyes and then tells him to go walk and then wash it off. That's peculiar at best and cruel at worst, right? Instead of fixing the problem instantly, Jesus puts this man on a journey. Hmm. Now this man, he begins to walk. He's walking to the pool. And if you can imagine this man walking in the dark, he's either doing it by himself or he has someone linked up helping him. But either way, this blind man is having to make a journey. Not being able to see ahead of him. 
one foot in front of the other. Which it's nice when it's a story in the scripture and it's nice when it's someone else's journey, but do you know that feeling when the miracle you need, when the hope you need, it's right in front of you, yet it still seems so far away? And he's walking, wondering probably, will this work? Should I stop walking? Should I turn back? Is this even worth it? He has that combination of hope and fear of hope for the future, for healing, for the miracle to happen, yet at the same time, that fear of disappointment that we all know so well. So he walks to the pool, and who knows how long it takes him. Maybe it was a quick few steps, or maybe it was a slow walk. Either way, he gets there, and the man must have had to bend down and gets his hands into the water, and he begins to wash his face, with the, from, wash the mud off of his face that Jesus put there himself. And all of a sudden, this man has only known darkness, has only known this struggle. All of a sudden, he begins to see. The miracle finally happened for him. It happened through the journey. It happened in a way that's different than most of us want. How did this man get his sight? Well, to get his sight, follow me, to get his sight, to get his freedom, to get to life, this man had to hold on to Jesus' words. Every step, deciding, is it worth trusting him? Okay, and every step was another step of trust. Every step was hearing, go to the pool, go to the pool, go to the pool, go to the water, go to the water. And with every step of the combination of fear and hope that we know so well, he held onto Jesus' words. The blind man received light not just by encountering Jesus, but by doing what Jesus said. Actually, it wasn't until this man did what Jesus said or held to his words that the man received his sight. And that's what it's like to follow Jesus so often. We hold onto his words. Often following Jesus, it looks like taking one step at a time, putting one foot in front of the other, even when we cannot see and even when we're not fully sure if it'll even work. We hold on to Jesus' words, which is what I've been waiting to just say all week long. Hold on to his words. Like, just, just hold on. Like, don't let go. Hold on. Hold on to his words. Don't just encounter the light. Follow the light. Go where he says to go. Stay where he says to stay. Wait where he says to wait. Do what he says to do. Just hold on to his words. Or as Moses prayed in the desert, if, I, if it, your presence does not go before me, I will not go. Hold on to his words. Holding on may mean doing something uncomfortable or confusing. Sometimes it means taking a longer route, like Israel going through the wilderness. But to follow Jesus when it feels like one step after another through the wilderness is actually a part of the journey of faith. We hold on to his words and we keep walking arm in arm with others on the journey. Or like the song says, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And though none go with me, Still I will follow, 
the night go with me still I Though none go with me, still I No turning back, no turning back. A sense I've had as I've prayed for our church is that some of us just need to keep on holding on to Jesus' words. Since sometimes his words have to be processed to be discovered as good news. Don't quit the walk too early, y'all. Remember, he's leading you to life. Don't quit following. For some of us, this may mean holding on to his promise. And for others, it may mean obeying his command. Either way, walk where he tells you to walk and then hold on long enough to see how he leads to life. Now, the irony at the end of John 9 is that the man who was humble enough to trust and walk, even when he didn't see ahead of him, ended up being able to see, while those who claimed to see but would not trust were the ones who were actually blind and left in darkness, all because they didn't trust that Jesus was the light. Now, over and over, Jesus told people, do you remember this phrase? Night is coming. And they will remain in darkness if they don't follow the light because the light will be with them only a little while longer. And that was true. Not long later, the light of the world was put on a cross to die in those dark ways. And on the cross, the one who said, come to me all who are thirsty, he cried out, I thirst. The sky went dark as darkness threw death at the light. And the light yielded its life to death and was placed in a dark tomb. But neither death nor darkness could hold the light down. Couldn't hold it. Three days later, the light got back up. Three days later, the light got back up. Jesus was raised from the dead, and this is how he leads us home. Anyone who trusts can be raised with him and led out of darkness because death has been swallowed up by victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Or as John put it, and we said it earlier, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light came into the world, and to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God is victorious over Egypt, the wilderness, death, and darkness. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom he loves and in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is Jesus, the one who has come to save us, the one who is worth entrusting your entire life to, and the one who calls out to anyone and to everyone, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light.